Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's before dawn, Sunday the 6th of June 1926, and in the detective office of the Kalgoorlie Police Station, officers are ready to swoop on the three men they believe are responsible for the murder of their friends and colleagues, Detective Inspector John Walsh and Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman. Chief of the Perth CIB, Detective Inspector Condon, marshals his men and Detective Sergeant Purdue outlines the plan. All the officers who've worked day and night for the past month are here. Detective Sergeants Manning, O'Brien, McGinty, Constables Pite and Reed, and Trooper Goldie, as well as a few new arrivals from Perth. Most of them are going to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel in Kalgoorlie. There, the targets are Philip Trafine, who works as a barman, and his boss, hotel proprietor Teddy Clark. Detectives have search warrants, and they're going to leave no stone unturned. While that raid's happening, other police will be on William Coulter's doorstep at his place in Boulder. The police arrive at the Duke of Cornwall at 6.30. In the bar, they're met by Trafine, just starting the morning shift. Detective Sergeant Manning asks where Teddy Clark is. Trafine replies, he's upstairs in bed. Purdue, McGinty and Constable Reed ask Trafine to accompany them to his house in Boulder. Manning calls up to Clark and asks him to come downstairs. They hand in the search warrant and begin taking the place apart. Police find a double-barreled shotgun which Clark claims belongs to Trafine. They also find a large quantity of very rich unprocessed ore. Then there's 200 pounds in cash and a lot of silver. Police will be taking all of that into evidence, along with Clark's Overland 6 motor car with the Dunlop balloon tires, similar to those that left tracks where Walsh and Pittman were murdered at the Bush Gold Processing Plant and where they were dumped at the old mine shaft. Detectives tell Clark they need him to accompany them to Kalgoorlie Police Station. At Trafine's place, they conduct a search and ask him to come in and give a statement too. A similar scene plays out at Coulter's home. 
By the time Kalgoorlie people are sitting down to breakfast, reading the papers or going to church, the police have in their custody the three men they believe to be the most vicious cop killers since the Kelly Gang. I'm Michael Adams and this is part three of the five-part Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. By June 1926, Philip Trephine looked older than his 51 years. He was what the locals called a broken-down miner, shorthand for men who'd contracted lung disease underground digging up gold and silver. Yet at one time this decrepit figure had been a local hero and a sporting champion. Philip John Trephine was born near Dunnelly, Victoria in 1873, just a year after Alexander Pittman. Records at Ancestry.com.au show he originally had the surname Trefini, his father an Italian-Swiss immigrant. Philip anglicised himself and in early adulthood emerged as a champion cyclist at Dunnelly. In March 1895, the Australasian newspaper noted, quote, A new star appears in the person of PJ Trefine, who won the double event there the two-mile wheel race and half-mile flutter, netting £40 in all. In November that year, Trefine competed in the Sydney Racing Carnival in front of 30,000 people. Despite high hopes that he'd win the League Cup, he failed to get a place in the final. In March 1896, back in Victoria and competing in a St Patrick's Day event, Trefine fell off his bike and broke his arm. Though he was back in the saddle a few months later, around this time he looked west for fame and fortune. As we heard in the Season 4 episode, The Nature of the Scorpion, bicycle racing was huge in the Western Australian goldfields. Trefine was there by April 1897 and dividing his time between mining work and competing as a cyclist. On the track, he was soon winning and placing, pocketing prize money and making big side bets. During this period, Trefine was regularly neck and neck in races with another goldfields champion, and that was of course, George Blunderfield. He also supported Blunderfield's divisive and self-serving bicycle club campaigns. So, like everyone, Trefine would have been shocked when his competitor and fellow clubman broke very bad from 1899. First it was theft, then child rape, then attempted murder and a prison escape, and finally the double murder that saw him hanged in 1918. While Blunderfield was first starting down this dark path, Trefine remained a top cyclist and a good citizen but the cycling craze was simmering down soon after Federation. When Trefine won a race in April 1901, the Kalgoorlie miner told readers, quote, There was very little betting over the match, and the excitement manifested over the racing would not have injured in the least the most pronounced sufferer from heart disease. Though Trefine was to remain a keen amateur sportsman, he turned his attentions to prospecting and mining. He married a woman named Julia Hawkins in 1902, and they were to have five surviving children in the space of little more than a decade. In 1915, Trefine was ordered off the mines because he had lung disease. To keep afloat, he did some prospecting and bar work. Around this time, he was mixed up in gold theft cases, though he wasn't convicted. But Trefine pressed his luck in the illicit trade. In September 1921, Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman had spent several days staking out a gold plant, but hadn't caught anyone in the act. Arriving one day, he and his partner saw the setup had been removed, and they followed cart tracks on their bikes for 16 miles towards Boulder. Close to sunset, they caught up with Trefine. Pittman said, quote, Good day, Phil. What have you got there? What he had there was a cart loaded with equipment that had been used to smelt stolen gold. Pittman took him back to the detective office, where he was questioned by Detective Inspector John Walsh. The officers would both give evidence at his trial, and Trefine would be convicted and sent to jail for six months. Upon his release, Trefine and his wife Julia ran a fruit and confectionery store at Boulder for a couple of years. 
After she died in February 1925, he supported his young sons by working bar for Teddy Clark at the Duke of Cornwall. A story that would do the rounds had it that some time before Julia passed, Pittman came to their house and executed a search warrant. By turning the place upside down at such a sensitive time, he'd added to the bad blood between the two men. On the morning of the 6th of June, what police knew was that Trephine, who was usually a sober chap, had been hitting the bottle hard for the past few weeks. Ever since, in fact, Walsh and Pittman's mangled bodies had been discovered. Trooper Goldie now recognised Trephine as the man who, just before that ghastly discovery, had said to him outside the Duke of Cornwall, quote, You'll never find the bloody bastards. When detectives searched Trafine's house at Boulder, they found a diary and other documents with business transactions from 1925 that appeared related to dodgy gold dealings. Police also seized clothing, including a pair of blue trousers made by the Adelaide Tailoring Company. These appeared to be identical in size and style to the grey trousers that had been found in the shaft. Questioned by Detective Sergeant Perdue, Trafine voluntarily gave a statement about his movements from the 25th to the 30th of April. Over that period, he'd gone to work as usual. On the evening of the 27th, he'd taken his little boy to the boxing, stayed until 9 o'clock and gone home to bed. He'd gone into work at the hotel at 6 the next morning, stayed for 4 hours and then gone home to clean up his house with his sons. He'd had lunch at the hotel, left around 2 o'clock, read and slept for a couple of hours and then gone back to work until 1 the next morning. The following days had been similarly uneventful. While Trafine was making his statement, the police sent for the manager of the local branch of the Adelaide Tailoring Company. Trafine was shown their ledger, dated the 16th of May 1925, recording that he'd ordered a pair of grey double-seated trousers, identical to those that had been discovered with the bodies in the shaft. Trafine had already been shown these trousers and denied that they were his, and now he said so again in the written statement. He claimed he'd never been to Miller's shaft, didn't even know where it was. He said he had been out to Celebration, but only about 12 miles from Boulder, not as far out as where the gold plant had been located. Last time he'd been to Celebration, he said it had been with his mate William Coulter, who'd shot a rabbit or two. That day, Coulter had used Trafine's shotgun, which he kept at the Duke of Cornwall Hotel. Trafine said that he had been out bush with Teddy Clark, but just one time, and that had been about 18 months ago. But by the time Trafine was making these claims, police had been investigating him for the past three weeks and Perdue knew that he was lying. Once the interrogation was complete and he'd made his statement, Trafine was charged with the murder of John Walsh, whose body had been positively identified. Charges would not at this time be made in the case of Pittman because doing so would open up a legal defence where it would be incumbent upon the Crown to prove it had been his torso that had been found when, sadly, those remains were beyond positive identification. Detective Sergeant Manning interviewed Teddy Clark. He was younger than Trafine and Coulter, born in Hertfordshire, England in 1894, but he had also become a well-known local identity since arriving on the goldfields around 1912. Kalgoorlie Boulder blokes liked to drink, and Teddy was hard to miss as a barman. As the Sunday Times was to report, quote, he is the last word in tidiness, his extremely dapper appearance never failing to call forth comment. Smith's Weekly would add, quote, When barman at the British Arms, Clark kept his English milk and white complexion by using face lotions. Every half hour, he took out of his pocket a comb and attended to his hair. Ribald remarks from dusty diggers in dungarees did not perturb him. Flash Teddy, the dapper dandy, who was so small he could have been a jockey, kept remarkably tidy bars, 
which was a point of difference in the usually rough-and-ready saloons of the goldfields. The little English fellow did well for himself. In 1917, he married an attractive local shop girl, Florrie Dunstan, who was then about 24 years old. Two years later, they had a daughter and moved up in the world when Teddy took over the license of the Duke of York Hotel. This pub might have been spick and span, but on a few occasions, Teddy was in trouble for trading out of hours. Then there was a curious occasion in which he obstructed police from entering the premises for about four minutes while people inside made themselves scarce. In 1924, Clark took over the license of the Duke of Cornwall Hotel. The pub was as distinctive as its new proprietor. When it had been opened in 1900, the Kalgoorlie Western Argus had reported, quote, Brick and stone have been employed throughout, and a departure from locally common styles of architecture has been made in having the facades of old English type, suggestive of ease and comforts within. The Duke of Cornwall did a booming business in beer. Yet, there was talk that Flash Teddy wasn't making all of his money from serving lagers to thirsty miners. Word was, the Duke was a place a man might sell a bit of ore that he'd pinched. Barman Filtrophine would handle such transactions. To the police on the morning of the 6th of June, Teddy Clark denied any such activity. If Trophine and William Coulter, who he said was an occasional drinker at the Duke, were in cahoots in the criminal pursuit of gold, then this was the first he was hearing of it. Clark had never been to any treatment plant in the bush. He'd never bought or owned any plant equipment. He'd never been out to celebration in his car. While he had had an interest in a mine at Binduli, it had been a short-lived investment a few years back. And while it was near where the poor detectives had been found, Clark said he'd never been to Miller's find. Clark told police that Trophine and Coulter had occasionally used his Overland 6 car, but never at night and not at all in the past three or four months. Clark said he'd never discussed the missing detectives with Trophine and Coulter. Yet, among the items seized at his hotel was a postcard making reference to Walsh and Pittman and a letter with sketches of coffins. Why had he been sent these seemingly threatening anonymous messages? Clark said he had no idea. He'd actually been intending to tell police about the postcard and the letter, but hadn't got around to it. What about the revolver the police had found under his mattress? Clark said he'd had it for a long time and it was simply for personal protection. How did he explain the gold-bearing ore found hidden in the hotel? Clark said the first he knew of it was when the police had found it. He had no idea how it had gotten there. But Trophine did have a key to the hotel, so maybe that was an explanation. In his statement, Clark said he wasn't sure what he'd been doing on the 27th of April. Likely, it was ordinary hotel business. But on the 28th, he'd been working from 9 in the morning until 6 in the evening when he'd been relieved by Trophine. Clark had then been free until 6 the next night. He wasn't sure what he'd been up to, but he did remember that he'd been sick with the flu. Clark said he knew nothing about the murders of Walsh and Pittman or the disposal of their bodies. Detectives knew that he was lying and they charged him with John Walsh's murder as well. In the past few weeks, police had also been building their case against William Coulter, but they didn't have as much evidence against him. Like Trophine and Clark, Coulter was a local identity. He'd been born around 1884 in New Zealand and had come to Kalgoorlie around 1906. First, he'd worked on the mines, but he'd never been much good and never got above the grading of bogger. In 1911, he'd been arrested on a gold theft charge, but was acquitted in a trial in which Walsh, Pittman and Manning had all given evidence. Coulter subsequently registered as a bookmaker, wearing the bag at Kalgoorlie and sometimes in Perth. 
he was a colourful racing identity, known far and wide. In 1920, he and four other men, including Phil Trafine, had been involved in a disputed gold lease, with the matter ending up in court. The following year, though, Coulter's gold troubles were criminal rather than civil. In July 1921, Walsh and Pittman caught him dolly pot in hand at his illegal gold plant, 14 miles outside of Boulder. The police testified that he'd gone quietly, saying, I am fairly caught, the game is up. Coulter, who by then had a wife and three children, got six months in jail. It was a heavy sentence, but there was every chance that Coulter, like Trafine, had previously been warned off by Walsh. Fifty years after the murders, Sidney Hocking, son of the owner of the Kalgoorlie Minor, would recall his early days as a reporter, including working on this case. He'd say of John Walsh, quote, He was a great old character, a very fair bloke. If he knew anybody was stealing gold, particularly if they were married, he would warn them. If these men didn't take heed and persisted in their illegal activities and Walsh caught them, then he'd do his utmost to punish them to the full extent of the law. Was that what had happened on the morning of the 28th of April? Had Pittman and Walsh come up on Coulter and tried to arrest him only for things to go very, very wrong? Interviewed by the police, Coulter said no such thing had happened. He gave them an account of his movements. These days, he was working as a bookie outside the Australia Hotel, and that's where you'd find him any day of the week, and it was where he'd been on the 27th and the 28th of April. When he hadn't been there, he'd been at home. There wasn't enough evidence to hold Coulter, and police had to let him go. An informal would say that Coulter went directly to the pub, where he skited about the interrogation, saying, quote, I beat the bastards. A special edition of Kalgoorlie's The Sun newspaper hit the streets that afternoon, confirming Clark and Trafine had been arrested. In the coming days, papers would report the reaction of Kalgoorlie and Boulder locals. Some were supposedly surprised that Clark had been arrested, given he was so small. What the Goldfields people thought, True said, was that Clark had only been involved with the gold processing, not the actual murder. That he'd been out at that bush plant seemed in little doubt because of those food tins. Quote, Clark is known to be a lover of such delicacies. It is freely stated police had traced the sale of quantities of tin chicken to the Cornwall Hotel from a little grocer's shop at Boulder. The impounding of his car was also reported, with it expected to play a major role in any trial. Papers also gave readers a reminder of Trafine's previous career as a cyclist, his illicit gold conviction and the recent passing of his wife. William Coulter, though, wasn't named, just referred to in the Western Australian as a, quote, prominent figure in Kalgoorlie Boulder. Articles explaining that this man had been questioned at length and had satisfied detectives he wasn't connected with the crimes. After their arrests, Clark and Trafine were kept in separate cells and guarded around the clock by police officers. They were charged in Kalgoorlie Court on Monday morning and remanded for eight days. The duo was represented by a young Goldfield solicitor named Herbert Stables. He was brilliant, having been a Rhodes Scholar, but he'd need senior counsel. So he got on the train for Perth to see the best in the defence business, Arthur Haynes. Haynes, as we heard in the episode Murder on the Dance Floor, was a barrister who'd pull out all stops for his clients. Just the previous year, in the case of Audrey Jacob, who'd shot her former lover dead in a ballroom in front of hundreds of witnesses, Haynes had followed a two-pronged defence. One, it had been an accident, Audrey having not even realised she had a gun in her hand at the time the shot was fired. Two, 
her trance-like state had been induced by the previous actions of the now-dead man, who'd been an unrelenting cad, a thief, and a rapist. The defence had worked. Audrey Jacob had walked free. When Arthur Haynes was born in 1886 in Perth, he was born to the law. His father, Richard Septimus Haynes, had been a lawyer in Sydney in the mid-1870s and had moved to Perth a decade later. His most famous client, serial killer Frederick Deeming, who some claim was Jack the Ripper. In March 1892, after Deeming was arrested on the goldfields, Haynes had figured prominently in the early stages of the case. He'd heard Deeming's confession, had his sanity assessed, taken his will, and unsuccessfully fought his extradition to Victoria, where the murderer's legal defence would in time be conducted by future Prime Minister Alfred Deakin. Like his father, Arthur Haynes was a last-ditcher, that is, an irreconcilable combatant in court. He was quick, funny, acidic and relentless, happy to harangue witnesses, police and opposing counsel. If there was anyone in Western Australia, perhaps even the whole country, who could get Clark and Trophine acquitted, it was Arthur Haynes. Except on the 10th of June, there was a development that made it impossible for him to represent both men. That day, Detective Sergeants Perdue, Manning and O'Brien went to the Australia Hotel and took William Coulter into custody. He was also charged with the murder of John Walsh. So what had changed in the past four days? Speculation mounted. Had somebody talked? That Teddy Clark had confessed seemed likely when his co-accused were taken to Perth by train and lodged in Fremantle Jail while he remained in custody in Kalgoorlie ahead of the inquest. The newspapers gave details of Coulter's background as a bookie, and it was rumoured he was worth a fortune, some £30,000. Truth came close to libel by reporting, quote, It can also be safely said that his amassed wealth did not originate from his calling the odds at the Perth and Kalgoorlie meetings. Truth sailed even closer to the wind with this, quote, Coulter has always been looked upon as a good sport, and at Kalgoorlie confirmed as a very reliable shot with a gun. On more than one occasion, he has been classified as the champion pigeon shot of the goldfields. Once Coulter was in Fremantle Jail, he engaged the services of Arthur Haynes, who'd represent him and Trafine, with Teddy Clark as their most bitter enemy. While Kalgoorlie and the rest of the state were relieved that the police seemed to have their men, the feeling wasn't universal, and some Goldfields locals believed that the trio, who they'd known and liked a long time, were innocent. Among the part of the population that hated the cops, bitterness remained. A Walsh Pittman Remembrance Fund had been established, and the Chamber of Mines had kicked things off with £200. Citizens had subsequently added just £68. At Boulder, a miserable £4.04 four shillings had been raised, and half of that had come from the mayor. The callousness of some men was exemplified when two miners walked into a Boulder hotel and called out for two pots of Pittman beer. The bartender was astonished and asked what they meant. One of the blokes said, quote, You know what we want, two pots of bloody beer with no heads on them. The inquest, which had been officially opened after the bodies were discovered, was resumed on the 29th of June at the Kalgoorlie Courthouse, with a sense of relief that rumours would finally be put to rest and the facts of the case made clear. Hundreds of people gathered in the early morning, hoping to get a seat in the public gallery. The alleyway leading to the gallery was so crowded that a picket fence along one side was broken down. Police held spectators back for hours as officers carried bundles and boxes containing scores of exhibits into the courtroom. 
When the doors opened, 100 people rushed in, leaving another 400 people in the street to gossip. Perth Sunday Times headlined their full-page story, The spirits of the murdered detectives look on, while the story of their fate is unfolded. The inquest would be conducted by Coroner Warden J.E. Geary, with that three-man jury who'd been impaneled the day the bodies were discovered. With 42 witnesses scheduled to appear and so much evidence to get through, it was expected the inquest would take 10 days. Trophine and Coulter were led in by constables who sat with them behind their counsel, Stables and Haynes. Clark was also brought in by a constable, but was allowed to sit with his Kalgoorlie solicitor, Reginald Cook. One of Cook's usual roles in this very courtroom was prosecuting gold thieves on behalf of the Crown. Yet now Cook was defending a man who stood accused of one of the worst crimes ever committed on the goldfields. Haynes immediately went on the offensive. Why were his clients, Trophine and Coulter, made to sit with constables while Clark was allowed to sit with his counsel? The reason was obvious, but Haynes wanted to start how he meant to go on, and that was by painting Clark as in cahoots with the cops, the Crown and Cook, and willing to say anything, tell any lie, in order to save his own skin. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Prosecutor Hubert Parker summoned his witnesses to connect the links in the chain of evidence in the Crown's case. First was a miner who'd seen the two detectives riding through Boulder on their pushbikes on the morning of the 28th of April, heading south for celebration. Then there was a railway guard who, early the next morning from his train, saw a motor car's lights near a crossing on the celebration road. When the train driver had sounded the whistle, the driver of the car had immediately stopped, turned off the lights, and whoever was in the vehicle had sat in the dark until the train passed. The railway guard told the court he'd never seen a car out there in the dead of night before and said he thought it was strange that someone had taken seemingly evasive action. A grocer testified that around this same date, he'd seen Coulter and Clark driving together at 7 in the morning. The vehicle had stopped in Boulder and Coulter had gotten out. Over the coming days, the evidence just got more and more sensational. Trooper Goldie told of the drink-affected Trophine saying, you'll never find the bloody bastards. Detective Sergeant Manning explained the discovery of Alexander Pittman's work journal with notes about early morning surveillance out south of Boulder, and he also detailed finding the bikes, the car tracks and the gold processing plant. Dozens of items that had been found at the shaft and at the plant were produced in court. After Clark had been in custody for six days, he'd taken Manning, Detective Sergeant Purdue and a constable to a piece of vacant land out near the racecourse. There, the police had found two separate mounds of earth, very different to the surrounding ground. This dirt was congealed with blood. About 300 paces away, the police found two petrol tins that had been thrown into a prickly bush. Both tins contained traces of the same dirt and more blood. One of these tins also held a piece of shrub that wasn't found in the racecourse area, but was found where the gold plant had been. Manning spent the rest of the day being relentlessly cross-examined by Haynes, who established the police had only found the tins and the earth because Clark, Clark, had told them where to look. Haynes elicited from Manning that Clark had made two statements. 
He demanded that they be produced in court now. Clark's solicitor Cook objected strenuously, and this was upheld. Haynes tried a different approach. He asked Manning when Clark had made the second statement. Manning said he couldn't remember. Haynes said that was strange because in their previous court dealings, the detective had never forgotten a date. Through vigorous cross-examination, Haynes managed to get that date, the 10th of June, and of course, it established that Clark's second statement had led directly to William Coulter's arrest. Haynes called Clark and the cops a, quote, unholy alliance. He demanded to know what Clark had said out at the racecourse. Manning replied, quote, he told me that Coulter put the blood in the earth there. Haynes had many, many more questions, and they ranged everywhere, with the effect that Manning became irritated. He asked the detective the exact height of one of the honeysuckle bushes out at the gold plant scene. Was it about four foot six inches? Manning lashed out, quote, I did not measure it. What are you talking about inches for? Haynes persisted with more minutiae about heights and measurements. When Manning remained annoyed, the barrister said, quote, You seem to be very suspicious, Mr. Manning. Manning shot back, I know you. Haynes tried to rattle him about his tracking expertise, about whether the footprints could have been made by other people, and whether the police had anything other than the tyre prints to connect Clark with a track near the gold plant. Haynes claimed that Dunlop balloon tyres were very common. Manning replied he'd only seen one set in Kalgoorlie, and that was on Clark's car. Haynes asked, had blood on the iron bar been analysed? Yes. What about the handwriting on the paper? Had that been analysed? Manning wasn't sure. What distance apart were the running man's footprints out at the gold plant? Manning had to reply they hadn't been measured. While his approach might have seemed scattershot, Haynes was systematically probing the Crown's case for any weaknesses. But now he circled back to the biggest weakness, Clark making his second statement. He asked Manning what had led up to it. The coroner ruled that this wasn't relevant at this time. Haynes wanted the names of all the police involved in the investigation and all the people who'd been interviewed as witnesses. He needed this information, he said, to find out what the Crown was covering up. These requests were overruled, as Haynes had known they would be, but making these dramatic demands and claims in court was all in service of painting a broader picture of his clients being framed by Clark and the cops. Haynes hammered away at it, asking Manning if he knew why Clark was being kept separately. Manning said he didn't. Haynes wanted to know if the statement that had been made by Clark's wife, Florrie, was going to be produced in the inquest. Crown Prosecutor Parker said it wasn't. All right, if that was the case, Haynes wanted to know from Manning how he'd gotten the statement from Mrs. Clark. Manning said, just by asking. When Detective Sergeant Perdue testified about all the evidence raised up from the shaft, Haynes asked that the various parcels be unfolded so the men of the jury could see, among other things, the saw allegedly used to cut up the detectives and the furnace in which they'd been burned. The stench that came off the bags and canvas sheets was so strong the courtroom doors had to be opened. Perdue testified that the corrugated fingernails sifted from the soil in the shaft were distinctive to John Walsh. Perdue said he'd observed them when working with the man. As for the false teeth that had been found, Perdue said he didn't know if Walsh wore false teeth, but he knew that Pittman did. Further to the identification, Detective Sergeant Manning was put back in the box. He said the trousers from the shaft had been examined by the tailor who made them. He said they were identical to a pair he'd custom-made for Trephine. The tailor believed that other material from the dump site was the same cloth he'd used in a suit that he'd made for Pittman. The sleeve links found in the shaft bore the initials WHJ. Manning said this wasn't some scrambling of John Walsh. 
they stood for Sir Walter H. James. This man, the fifth Premier of Western Australia, had owned the cufflinks and in 1918 given them to John Walsh as a Christmas present. One of Walsh's sons identified them in court, saying that his father always wore them. Regarding the physical evidence, Haynes elicited from Purdue that no fingerprints had been found on the various pieces of evidence. Further, nothing from the shaft could be traced to Coulter. As for those food tins, under cross-examination, the detective said they hadn't been conclusively traced to anyone. They also hadn't found any shotgun ammunition at Trafine's house. Bit by bit, Haynes was chipping away at the Crown's case. William McGillivray, doctor and government bacteriologist, said he and Dr Matthews had conducted two post-mortems on remains presumed to be Walsh and Pittman. He testified there were no bullet wounds and the cause of death was not able to be established. So far, the Crown case seemed very weak, but now began a succession of sensational testimonies. Hilda Slee, who was employed as a servant at the Duke of Cornwall Hotel, said on the morning of Thursday the 29th of April, she didn't take tea up to Teddy Clark in bed as usual. That was because he was already up, fully dressed, and about to clean his car. Hilda Slee testified that Phil Trafine wasn't in the bar that morning, contradicting the claim he'd made in his statement to the police. She testified that around this time, she'd noticed that a white-handled Johnson carving knife was missing from the hotel kitchen. Shown the knife retrieved from the shaft in court, Hilda Slee said it was of similar shape and similar brand. A small blue enamel kettle belonging to Trafine had also vanished from the hotel at this time, and it was very much like the one produced in evidence in court. Hilda Slee said she'd bought tinned asparagus, tinned chicken, tinned shrimps and tinned lobster for the Clarks. Mrs Clark, she said, had put some of these in hampers that she made for the men when they went out bush. While Hildeslee's testimony had been tantalising, evidence given by the next witness was jaw-dropping. On the morning of Wednesday the 7th of July, Florrie Clark was called. She testified that for a long time Trafine had been buying stolen ore from miners. Trafine, William Coulter and her husband then processed this ore in an illegal plant hidden in the bush. Mrs Clark said she'd known about it and she hadn't liked it. Mrs. Clark said that about 1pm on Tuesday the 27th of April, Coulter had borrowed their Overland 6 car to go out bush. As far as she knew, Trafine had gone with him, but her husband had not accompanied the men. The next time Mrs. Clark had seen the men, it was about 5.15 the following afternoon. Trafine, she said, had brought the shotgun back. The men had gone into the hotel parlour with Teddy. Trafine had gone home shortly after that, and then her husband had dropped Coulter back to his place. When Teddy returned to the hotel, he took her aside and told her what they'd told him. Walsh and Pittman had surprised Trafine and Coulter at around 2 that afternoon. They'd shot the detectives. Teddy told Flurry that she had to act like she didn't know anything because Coulter had demanded secrecy. After dinner that night, Teddy said he was going out bush with Coulter. Mrs. Clark had asked him not to go. He said he had to. Trafine would work his normal shift that night in the bar, and this would give him an alibi. Mrs. Clark said her husband had not told her why he was going out in the bush, but he had taken a carving knife from the kitchen and he'd also taken a saw. He'd left at 6.45 that night and returned 12 hours later and immediately set about cleaning the car. When she asked him what had happened, he told her he'd spent five hours sitting in the vehicle in the bush while Coulter was at the gold plant and doing whatever it was he was doing. 
In court, Mrs. Clark identified the knife produced as similar to the one Teddy had taken. She said she'd seen the handsaw too, with its distinctive broken end and damaged handle, at the hotel. An ink drum that had been used as a furnace at the gold plant had also come from their place. Her husband had bought it 18 months earlier from the Kalgoorlie Miner newspaper. Mrs. Clark said she knew that Coulter and Trephine had cut parts out of this steel drum to make it into a gold-smelting furnace. The police had retrieved two poplin curtains from the shaft, and these were now shown to Mrs. Clark. She identified them as being left over from their time at the Duke of York Hotel. She testified that she often made up hampers for Coulter and Trephine to take to the bush, and these consisted of cold meat, tinned asparagus, tinned chicken and tinned shrimps, along with eggs for their breakfast. A bar slip was produced in court. It recorded that Trephine had been at work at the Duke of Cornwall when the murders were committed. Mrs. Clark said that the original, in her handwriting, had been burned. This one had been written for Trephine by her husband to give him an alibi. But since the murders, she said, Trephine had been drinking way too much. So much, in fact, that Teddy had often had to cover for him in the bar. After the police had arrested her husband and Trephine, she said William Coulter had come to her and said he was very sorry, but they had to keep him out of it. But she couldn't. Not with Teddy behind bars. So she told her husband he had to tell the truth. If he didn't, she would. And that was when Clark had made his second statement, which she then corroborated by making hers. The following day, the court got to hear all of it from Teddy Clark himself. He said he'd taken over the Duke of Cornwall Hotel in April 1924 and begun trafficking in illegal gold a few weeks later. Miners brought stolen ore to the hotel, and Trephine did the buying with money that Clark supplied. The ore was then hidden around the hotel. When that accumulated a sufficient quantity, Trephine and Coulter used Clark's car to take it out to the bush plant. This happened, Clark said, about once a month. As well as taking a hamper, the men usually took Trephine's shotgun. If anyone asked what they were doing, they would say they were out shooting. Once the gold was processed, Coulter sold it and the men split the proceeds. At this point, Haynes wanted Clark's original statement produced so the court could compare the lies he told then with the lies he was telling now. The coroner ruled that Clark was not today under oath, so it was beside the point. That would come out if the case went to trial. Continuing, Clark said he'd only been out to the gold processing plant on one occasion, but he was able to identify the various bits of kit he'd seen there as being those now produced in the court. Trephine and Coulter had gone out, Clark said, on the morning of the 27th of April, and they'd come back that evening. They told him they were going out very early the next morning to finish treating the ore. Clark had worked in the bar until 1am. Next day, he had the flu and he stayed in bed until 4.30 in the afternoon. When Trephine and Coulter returned an hour later, they took him to the parlour and told him what had happened. Coulter had said, quote, Pittman and Walsh came on us today and Phil shot Pittman before I knew what happened. I then shot Walsh. When Clark recounted this in court, the men he'd just accused of murder stared at him in amazement. Clark looked anywhere but in their direction. Clark told the court that Trephine had then said, quote, I shot Pittman with my gun. I told Coulter I had done my share, and it was for him to do his. Coulter then shot Walsh. Neither men had told Clark which weapon had been used to kill the detectives, and Clark told the court he still didn't know, but they had taken the shotgun with them. Further, Coulter had borrowed an automatic revolver from him some months earlier and had not returned it. 
During this remarkable conversation on the evening of the 28th of April in the hotel, Clark had asked Trephine and Coulter where the detectives' bodies were. They told him they were still out at the plant. Coulter had said, quote, We tried to burn the bodies, but they would not go in the furnace. Coulter also told him they'd scooped up the earth where the men had fallen, and they had it in Clark's car in petrol tins. Coulter said they'd spent hours looking for the bikes, but couldn't find them. Coulter had then said to Clark, quote, I want you to come out with me tonight, Ted, to prove an alibi for Phil by his being here and working the night shift. Clark said he couldn't go, not least because he was sick with flu. But Coulter insisted. Clark protested, quote, I have had nothing to do with this murder and you can't expect me to take any part in it now. Coulter had said he only wanted Clark to come out with him for company and to give Trephine a reason to be working the bar. Incredible as it might seem, Clark agreed, but he had one condition. He wasn't going to actually have anything to do with whatever it was that Coulter was going to do out at the plant. Coulter said sure, he'd clean up everything and he wouldn't ask Clark to help. Coulter asked him to get a knife and a saw, like the ones that had been produced in court. Clark told the court that he didn't ask Coulter what he wanted them for. He hadn't asked, he hadn't guessed, he hadn't known anything. On the way out in the car, they'd stopped near the race course. Coulter had taken the earth-filled tins and gone into the bush. They'd driven a few hundred yards, stopped again, and Coulter then disposed of the now empty tins. During this time, Clark had remained in the driver's seat. They stopped also at the house of a man named Matthews, where Coulter had been staying since his own house had burned down recently. There, Coulter got a hurricane lamp and they resumed their journey. Out at the plant, Coulter went off with the lamp, the knife and the saw. Clark again stayed in the car. He told the court he could hear Coulter soaring, but he wasn't sure what was happening. Coulter had come back now and then for a nip of whiskey. After returning a couple of times, he said to Clark that he'd cut up the bodies and had tried to burn the parts, but it was taking too long and they'd have to dispose of the rest elsewhere. Clark claimed that it was only then that he'd realised what was going on. And even so, he maintained in court that he'd had no idea what Coulter was then bringing out of the bush in parcels and then putting in his car along with plant equipment. But Clark did admit that he'd helped Coulter bring a couple of heavy bags of bricks out of the bush and load them into the vehicle. Coulter took the wheel at four in the morning and they drove towards Boulder. The train had passed and Coulter had stopped and killed the lights. Coulter had pulled off Celebration Road near Binduli and come to the Miller's Fine shaft. He then took everything from the car by himself and consigned it to the depths just as the day was breaking. Clark did say he'd helped again with those bags of bricks. They drove back to town, Coulter warning Clark to clean his car thoroughly. He'd been doing this when Hilda Slee had come to get him for his morning tea. After that, Clark told the court, Trephine continued working at the hotel and drank too much. Coulter had come in a few times to impress upon him the need for silence and to reassure Clark he would never be implicated. But Clark had stopped visiting after the bodies were found. Clark said he'd lied to the police at first because he was protecting Trephine and Coulter and keeping his word about staying silent. After Florrie threatened to talk, he'd spilled everything he knew. Clark said he'd come to court voluntarily, that he wasn't under any threat or inducement, and that he didn't expect or hope for the £1,500 reward. Under cross-examination, Haynes put it to Clark that he'd been at the shaft alone and he'd solely disposed of the bodies and equipment. 
He said Clark had been wearing Trafine's grey trousers over his own and had been wearing Trafine's sand shoes because they wouldn't leave Prince. Haynes said Clark had tossed the trousers into the hole and buried the sand shoes. Clark denied all of this. Nor had he gotten rid of Pittman's revolver and handcuffs. He also denied being offered immunity in return for his testimony. Clark said no, he hadn't gone back to the shaft to blow it up and been scared off by a car and subsequently lacked the nerve to return. Clark denied ever saying he wanted to shoot Pittman in the stomach with the detective's own now unaccounted for pistol. Rather, Clark asserted several times Coulter and Trafine had been the ones to say they'd shoot the police if they ever came up on them while they were treating gold. Haynes was to have many more questions for Teddy Clark, but they would wait. On the last day of the inquest, Friday the 9th of July, Haynes succeeded in having Clark's first lying statement read to the court. How could anybody trust anything that came out of this man's mouth? That this would go to trial had been a foregone conclusion. Haynes had known that, and he'd used the inquest and his extensive and intensive cross-examinations to get as much as he could on the record. He wanted to know everything the Crown had and where their case was most vulnerable. There was no upside in his client saying anything now. Coulter was called and refused to give evidence. Instead, Haynes read a statement in which Coulter said the inquest wasn't a proper trial in which his rights were protected, but instead a farce and a proceeding in which hearsay was being admitted. Trafine refused to give evidence for the same reason. After a brief retirement, the jury found that the remains were Walsh and Pittman and that they'd been willfully murdered by Coulter and Trafine, with Clark acting as an accessory after the fact. All three would stand trial on those charges. In the weeks that followed, there was legal argy-bargy over where the trial would be held. Haynes wanted it conducted at Kalgoorlie, where a jury would comprise men who knew the lay of the land, and where he'd be more easily able to call witnesses to testify to this or that minor matter relating to life and crime on the goldfields. The prosecution wanted the trial held in Perth, where a jury would be more impartial, saying the Crown would meet the expenses of any witnesses who needed to travel. Arthur Haynes lost this fight and would subsequently bring this decision up as unfair during proceedings. The trial was to begin on Monday the 16th of August 1926 in the Supreme Court in Perth. Usually in such cases, much or even all of the evidence and testimony is identical to what was heard in the inquest. But most murderers didn't have a barrister as formidable as Arthur Haynes. His first job? Demolish Teddy Clark. His second task, launch an audacious defence based on a stunning story that he hoped would lead to an even greater reversal of fortune than he'd pulled off for Audrey Jacob. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part three of the five-part Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. The fourth and fifth instalments will be out early next week. Be sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you get them the moment they come out. A big shout out thank you to Penny Brunton for recently becoming a supporter and to Martin Collins for his very kind comments about the show and for additional support. Thanks again to listener Greg L for suggesting this episode and thanks also to David Whiteford from the State Records Office of Western Australia for assisting with access to the police files. If you'd like to help me make more episodes like this, 
and get early ad-free access to every Forgotten Australia episode, as well as bonus episodes and the Australia's Sweetheart audiobook, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or just click on that link in your show notes. You can also support Forgotten Australia by leaving a review and rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.